Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. The Phantom of Emptiness on the Psychodynamics of White Depression. The concept of white depression marks a milestone in the history of psychoanalysis. It altered the perception of certain forms of psychological suffering and made them visible, understandable, and thus treatable for the first time. For white depression describes a mute, mostly hidden suffering that can go a lifetime without being understood. Frequently, this suffering is obscured by other symptoms that exhibit a strange intractability proving themselves resistant to all possible attempts at therapy, as if something essential was always being passed over. In fact, white depression does not normally refer to a clinically well-defined disorder, but rather to a particular mental structure that can result in a wide variety of symptoms. Sometimes, as we'll hear in a moment, one also speaks of a psychological complex, i.e., a certain psychological issue that there is no getting around, like the spider that joins together a web of unconscious psychological threads. For this, a term has established itself within the theoretical language of psychoanalysis, the complex of the dead mother, admittedly a rather strange and misleading expression that we will try to elucidate in more detail over the course of this episode. This name has been taken from the title of a text by the French psychoanalyst André Green, who discovered white depression, as it were, and is one of the most influential figures in contemporary psychoanalysis. So what exactly is meant by white depression? The word depression elicits allusions to a certain set of symptoms, a deep and persistent feeling of dejection, a lack of drive, a series of physical symptoms, a loss of enjoyment in life, even suicidal tendencies, but also feelings of guilt, self-hatred, self-reproach, and self-recrimination, as well as an agonizing ambivalence in one's own emotional life that makes it severely difficult to come to any decisions or resolutions at all. Such symptoms can have many causes, for not all depression is the same. What these different forms of depression have in common, however, is perhaps to speak metaphorically, a certain darkness in psychic experience, a tangible dimming of life that is also noticeable to others, as if the self had been shrouded in a dark cloud from which it can no longer find a way out. No future, no hope, no comfort. A black depression. White depression, by contrast, usually refers less to the dramatic darkening of one's life than to its quiet, unseen companion. Individuals affected may indeed be professionally successful, may even start a family, cultivate relationships, lead a seemingly normal life that, on the surface, does not suggest any sort of suffering or torment, and yet for some incomprehensible reason it is nevertheless what defines their experience of life. It is as if rooted at the center of mental experience is some deep sense of meaninglessness beyond any understanding, precisely because it has no connection to external circumstances at all. It is as if all external vigor perishes in the emptiness within, 
loses all meaning, is unable to spark that inner fire that warms and sustains experience. The self is dominated by a sense of futility. Sometimes it is rationalized as philosophical, but for the most part it is intangible and vague, permeating all facets of experience, as if everything one does, makes, and feels, every activity that presumably constitutes one's identity, every relationship that is supposedly important, is like a shell, like an external husk with no real meaning, as if it were simply wrapped around some lifeless core that has taken over the very essence of oneself, as if one were no longer able to believe in anything, not in relationships, not in goals, not in anything of any presumed meaning at all, nor able to really set one's heart on anything, which in fact means not being able to truly love with the full strength of one's heart, like learning to pronounce the words of love with the lips, but not the heart. It is possible to experience joy, love, or enjoyment, but only as if it were a favor to others, so as not to deprive them of happiness, while a quite different truth is felt within. Under such circumstances, it is difficult to continuously remain emotionally invested in anything. It is as if doing anything at all requires summoning additional resources from somewhere requires overcoming some resistance that is increasingly exhausting and depleting, especially when things appear from the outside to be going well, with relationships or other opportunities in one's professional or private life. There is a tendency to withdraw, to sacrifice one's ambitions, or to sail along at half-mast with no real conviction, and again, out of an overall sense of deep futility. And what if I do achieve my goals? What then? Somehow, none of it really means anything in the end. The sense that one is incapable can be overwhelming, which for others may be difficult to comprehend. The feeling that one is incapable of committing to anything, of putting one's skills and talents to use, of evolving, of taking steps towards maturity, or, in the words of André Green, even when it has all been achieved, there still remains a profound sense of dissatisfaction with the outcome, as if one were always stuck, no matter where one is headed in life. Sometimes white depression is a silent companion, always by one's side, and yet it is often difficult to name. In severe cases, however, white depression can become the guiding force of one's life, with far-reaching consequences for the way it is lived possibly in the form of a deep nihilism that is difficult to explain, and that can never be appeased even by the greatest that life has to offer. Life feels suffused with a great weariness, and often a latent existential tedium as well. Even beginning early in life, or at those times, considered to be the crowning moments of life, as if death had secretly always been friend and confidant. Sometimes, White depression can morph into black depression when subjected to the difficulties of life, and sometimes constitutes the invisible core of other symptoms, such as obsessive-compulsive disorder or borderline personality disorder. Sometimes, even suffering itself becomes the very dubious substance of life. While difficult for others to understand, this tendency towards suffering, in which everything is seen as difficult, tormenting, and meaningless, 
as though it was secretly a masochistic form of gratification, has, as we will soon see, an important message to send. What exactly is this psychic structure, or, one might say, this phantom of emptiness and futility all about? How does white depression develop? As we have heard in many episodes of our podcast, it is always difficult to infer causes from symptoms, for certainly all suffering has its own individual truth. No theory can explain to a person what his or her particular truth is. At best, it can only provide guidance. The feeling of emptiness in particular can vary considerably. There is the experience of emptiness as a breakdown in psychic structures in general, as psychotic emptiness. The feeling of emptiness can also be the result of repression, for example, when a family or partnership is subject to a characteristic state of tedium, a symptom that fundamental conflicts are being repressed or silenced. That said, Emptiness acquires a particular place in the mental life of a person with white depression. To use psychoanalytic terminology, it is a so-called inner object, something that one carries within, that is part of oneself, woven into one's identity, an inner being that one is deeply attached to and that wields tremendous power over the self, something that cannot be shaken off no matter how hard one tries. One way to trace the psychodynamics of white depression is by way of the findings of developmental psychology, which sees all psychological experience as originating in relationships and the self as formed by the internalization of relationship experiences. From the perspective of psychoanalysis, questions of meaning and fulfillment are not simply philosophical, for they are rooted in the experience of emotional resonance. An activity is experienced as meaningful when we feel that it has meaning for others, when other people show an interest in us, when we can share it with them, at least in our imagination. For example, a child shows his father a picture he has made a great effort to paint. The father looks at the picture with interest, studies it, may find himself touched by it, or may wish to know more, ask what it represents, praise its merits, perhaps offering a tip on what the child can do to improve. Even days later, he recalls the child's love of painting, reflects on it, asks again what the child did today, and so on. This kind of affectionate interest instills the child with an essential sense of meaning. The things I do are meaningful to others, not to just anyone, but to a person I love deeply. From this feeling of resonance, there emerges a sense of meaning. It is worthwhile, the things I do. Because it is important to me, it is also important to my father. And because it is important to my father, it is also important to me. The child experiences his actions as meaningful, interesting, and motivating. If most of the child's experiences are like this during development, then the child will internalize this principle. The ego is made up of relationship experiences. Out of the other, outside, who shows interest in what we do, there emerges over time the other, inside. Accompanying our every activity is this inner object, which is why, later in life, we are no longer dependent on external validation 
and instead can attribute meaning ourselves. It is as if we have someone inside who watches with interest when we do something, who responds with affinity when we feel something. This is what forms the bedrock of the experience of meaningfulness, which, by the way, also overlaps somewhat with an idea from psychology known as the expectation of self-efficiency. Of course, not every statement will always create this sense of resonance, and that too is necessary for psychological development, just as every need cannot always be met. Psychic space can only develop where there is also distance, when the other is sometimes not there, where we have to manage on our own, without someone else always there to immediately fulfill our every need which can be frustrating for children in the beginning. But there is no psychological development without the experience of frustration. It is crucial, however, that it doesn't last too long, isn't more overwhelming than a child can handle, and isn't the prevailing feeling the child has of themselves and their relationship to their parents. But what if the relationship to the primary caregivers is largely devoid of resonance, According to André Green, the typical scenario for the development of white depression is what he calls the loss of the object in the presence of the object. What does this mean? It could involve, for example, the loss of a parent, not in a physical sense, as in death or abandonment, but rather in a psychological sense. This is what André Green means by the dead mother, a mother who may well be present, may even provide for the child, but who is also emotionally absent, lacking connection to the child. A mother who, from the perspective of the child, is lifeless without being physically dead, whereby this need not only be the mother and could apply to any of the infant's primary caregivers. In episode 19, we examined what impact the real loss of a caregiver literally a dead mother, can have on the child, a situation that is not necessarily linked to the development of white depression. But let us return once again to the example of the child who shows his painting to his father. However, let us now imagine a father who is so preoccupied with his own issues, perhaps because of a domestic dispute, or even because he is suffering from depression, that he has little emotional engagement to offer his child. Let us say that the bond between father and child has actually been very intense and strong. The father is a very important figure for the child. But now the father takes a superficial glance at the picture, might make an effort and say, well done. But his response is weary, forced, does not come from the heart. No deeper contact is made and the father never mentions it again. Perhaps the child's aspiration also touched a wound in the father's heart. He too knows very well that same longing to be seen and recognized. And yet, precisely because his own longing has remained so unfulfilled, he finds it difficult to offer someone else that experience, even if he would actually like to. Unwittingly, he closes off his emotions to his child, not out of nastiness, but rather to protect himself from pain. Even disinterested parents are not normally evil 
but rather parents who in a very childlike way are themselves in need of attention and love. There will be no serious consequences for the child if such experiences are sporadic. However, it is another matter indeed if this is the predominant way the child experiences his father. Say, because he really is mentally ill, unable to escape from a state of inner absorption. Perhaps the child will first make different attempts to win his father's love, to find the thing that interests him, or may demand his attention through increasingly desperate means, anger, accidents, or dramatic outbursts. Ultimately, these are all strategies for winning back a loved one, for reestablishing emotional resonance. As the American developmental psychologist Edward Tronick demonstrated with his famous still-face experiment, but indeed, only if this is the prevailing mode. So what does happen when all attempts come to nothing, when neither charm nor anger nor hopeless pleas are able to resurrect and win over the father? At some point, the child will stop trying and retreat into resignation. At the same time, something vital will be internalized from that experience. What I do, what I feel, what I am, is meaningless to the other person. No matter how much I love him, I can't bring him to show interest in me, no matter what I do. Here is the pivotal transition to white depression. The child internalizes the person who does not attend to them with care, who is instead self-absorbed, indifferent, disinterested. The child internalizes a so-called dead object and acquires, in this example, the complex of a dead father. The feeling of a profound meaninglessness is imprinted into the center of the self, also because the child has no other explanation for why the love and attention of his father has been lost. Meaning is created when things are brought into relation with one another, when an explanation is possible, which is also why reconstructing the links in one's biography is effective therapeutically. To not understand something means it has no meaning and yet exists, as part of a reality in which one has to live. This nothing is made a part of our mental structure. An alternative family background that may nevertheless have similar consequences could be the systematic and sustained failure of the parent to relate meaningfully to the child. For example, the father does react to the child, but in a way that is not even really about the child at all and does not actually constitute an emotionally meaningful connection. Perhaps because the father has an inner image of the child that has little to do with the real child and more with narcissistic fantasies or other projections. The father may, for instance, always treat the child as if it were completely helpless and sad, even though that isn't at all what the child is actually communicating, possibly because the father is unconsciously striving to nurture his own sad and hurt inner child and is unable to separate his own experiences and perceptions from those of his child. If these relationship experiences predominate, then what it ultimately means for the child is that emotional resonance is lacking. What doesn't develop is a living connection between the child's own feelings and the reactions of others. 
Contact is diffused with dead zones. Resonance is replaced with pseudo-contact. And the child has no choice but to go along ineffectively like a puppet. Similar relationship patterns have been examined in both psychoanalytic literature and in empirical research on attachment, especially between mother and child, although there is now increasing evidence that a father with a mental illness can significantly affect the development of the child as well. As to the importance of fathers, we will explore that in depth in another episode. There has been a lot of research, for example, on the effects that a mother's postpartum depression can have on the emotional development of her child, especially if the illness goes untreated or even undetected, which is not uncommon, especially in older generations. Sometimes children never learn about their parents' depression, even after growing up, either because they lacked the words or understanding or because no diagnosis was ever made. Or the mother is absorbed by grief, for example, for another child that was lost in a miscarriage and is so overwhelmed by pain that she is no longer able to open her heart to the child that did survive, as much as she tries. In the end, this is not only about the child's achievements and actions, not even really about the picture that was painted for the parents. Instead, it concerns the child's basic expressions of life that have been left unanswered. Smiles, eye contact, vocalizations, announcements of discomfort, the need for love and security, the full flurry of living signals for which the child wishes to arouse a response. If no answer is found, the child loses what could be called its emotional umbilical cord to the world. The voice that called the child into being becomes empty and joyless. The face that registers its yearning, the love that cradles its being, all of this is erased at once, disfigured into something cold, stiff, afflicted with deathly sorrow. That gleam in the mother's eye in which the child sees itself and comes to know itself dims and vanishes, confronting the child with a dead gaze. The mother is there, but at the same time, not there. Metaphorically, she is a living dead, a dead mother. What consequences does the experience of such a relationship have for the child? From the outside, the child appears to turn away from the mother. In psychoanalysis, this is called decathexis. This is when there is a withdrawal of attention and affection from the mother. The relationship with the mother appears to have been terminated. The child no longer demands love. Mother-child interactions take on a depressive quality. And the more this lifeless core is disguised, hidden perhaps behind a smiling mask, the more quietly this depressive quality will be written into their interactions. From the outside, the child appears engaged, or at least to have adapted, and yet their interactions no longer emit the glow of joyful relatedness. No matter how much it seems from the outside that the fire in their relationship has died out, on the inside, the child's attachment to its mother remains heavily charged. This is crucial to the development of white depression. Even if interactions with the mother are not very nourishing, or have even ceased entirely, the bond will not dissolve because the mother is still there, still shaping daily life. 
unlike in the case of a real loss, here the loss of the object in the presence of the object remains a barrier to any process of mourning or resolution whatsoever. The child cannot move on because the mother is still there, nor can it establish contact with the mother because the mother is absent at the same time. The inner attachment to the mother, the so-called mother object, acquires the character of the undead. A complex and extremely stable attachment to the lifeless caregiver is formed, but now with a poisonous core. Appearing from the outside to withdraw from the relationship is in fact the child's attempt to save the inner bond with the mother. By relinquishing all expectations, all demands, all hope, the child is able to maintain an inner image of the mother that does not disappoint, does not harm, is wholly good. For where there is no expectation, there could be no disappointment. The mother or father is internalized as a dead caregiver, consigned to a crypt within the child's soul, along with any self-love the child has retained. The psychoanalysts Nicholas Abraham and Maria Toruk have referred to this as the inner crypt. Another evocative expression is sometimes also used, the dungeon of thyself, which comes from a poem by John Milton and represents the impermeable walls behind which one's vitality, love, and desire are locked. Precisely because of such intense disappointment, such deep wounds, such utter devastation, the child unconsciously maintains the inner bond, clinging to the lifeless caregiver, refusing to give her up, forever seated by her grave, keeping vigil over her in the inner crypt. The caregiver is not abandoned, but conserved. In psychoanalytic terms, one also speaks of the conservation of the object. No mourning is possible. No tears can flow. At the core of the self, time stands still. Nothing changes. The helpless child stays by its impassive mother's side, indeed, sometimes for the rest of their life. In a paradoxical turn of phrase, the child internalizes emptiness as relatedness. This idea is of crucial importance for understanding white depression that expresses itself later in life, for it signifies an unconscious attachment to the lifeless caregiver, to the dead mother, and does so with extraordinary tenacity, usually also involving a deep unconscious identification a becoming one with the dead mother or father, in which astonishing biographical parallels sometimes show up. This, too, is an attempt to hang on to the mother. If I become her, then she will always be with me. It is as if every call to evolve, to utilize one's talents, to find oneself, to love, to feel, to live, is at the same time a call to separate from the mother to leave the inner crypt and return to the world of the living. This, however, would require experiencing how hurt they are inside, how infinitely sad, how hopelessly disappointed. And because this pain is traumatic, it is nearly impossible to endure. The inner grave appears sealed with an immovable stone. Restoring emotional vitality would mean acknowledging that the mother cannot be resuscitated, 
that she is lost, and that means feeling complete traumatic abandonment. And every attempt to separate would finally bring with it the overwhelming power of guilt, for separation means leaving the mother behind, alone in the crypt, abandoned to her misfortune. Every new chapter in life, such as a new relationship or success at work, brings with it the shackles of crushing guilt, paralyzing and inhibiting any budding ambition. I can't do it, it's just too hard. Often, analytic processes that reawaken one's vitality, desire, and feelings initially usher in a phase of overwhelming pain, unbearable guilt, and traumatic fear. It is a delicate balancing act to ensure that a process of mourning is fostered rather than a repetition of the trauma. The excruciating sentence, I have never been loved, describes that destructive fear, that memory that cannot be faced because it threatens to obliterate whatever sense of self one has inside. In therapy, it is in the transference where this unconscious repetition is expressed as the sentence, I will never be loved. This feeling acquires particular vehemence when the person feels excluded, when he or she is made to feel that the love of the longed-for person does not belong exclusively to them and them alone. For instance, this might play out with the therapeutic love of the therapist, who indeed has other patients in a life beyond therapy. The shadow of the dead mother comes to ultimately fall on the person's love life. Love means reawakening all buried hopes, setting one's heart on someone once again, believing in them. But it also means abandoning the inner attachment to the lifeless caregiver, stepping out of the shadows, exposing oneself again to the risk of being hurt. A new love usually awakens that buried hope, but then, as it grows more intense, leads to inner withdrawal as love drains away inexplicably. As if, with every new partner, the relationship with the mother is being repeated. This pattern is mostly unconscious, meaning it is not something one has direct access to, is usually only present in fantasies, dreams, or artistic gestures. Discovering and understanding this innermost structure often requires many years of therapeutic work. What is more visible from the outside are the attempts to cope which can vary considerably, sometimes proving productive, while other times remaining pathological. We now want to consider some examples taken from André Green, as well as the psychoanalyst Christa Roda Daxa in her highly readable essay, Despair as Object. Number 1. Resuscitation Attempts Here, coping involves an attempt sometimes over a lifetime, to recapture some lost meaning, to reanimate the death inside, to rekindle the sparkle in the eye of the lifeless mother or father. This can be in a very basic physical sense, like self-stimulation, as when food, smoking, or masturbation are used to generate autoerotic pleasure, yet no real lasting satisfaction is ever found, and an almost compulsive reliance on repetition develops or there is a compulsion to intensify the stimuli, usually resorting to even more extreme measures 
in order to feel through stimulation a trace of aliveness. It is not uncommon that extraordinary achievements in life are born of some special wound. Indeed, it is among the wondrous paradoxes of human development that strength can also be derived from injury. With every successful deed, we also mend a part of ourselves. And yet, this is where the foundation for tragic developments also lies, as when the sole aim of life remains the child's unconscious attempt to regain his father's lost love through learning, writing, competitive sports, music, success, sometimes even developing a tremendous ambition to this end. And yet still, no matter how successful one may be, there is always a feeling of futility. Even success doesn't bring a sense of inner resonance, recognition, gratification, or meaning, and there is only emptiness, disappointment, or dissatisfaction. Number two, devaluation of the object. This is an attempt to master the trauma of emptiness by divesting emotional relationships of all meaning. Here, Outright hatred can develop towards anything that unconsciously recalls the lifeless mother or father. The person clings obsessively to those relationships in which they are always disappointed, in which the other person is always inadequate, or in which their interests are never taken into account. In other words, persons who are well-suited as parental projections, partners, teachers, doctors, politicians. Here, there is a tendency to constantly invalidate these individuals, to take revenge on them, to punish them with indifference, to pronounce them worthless and unimportant, to point out their faults for them to finally see. All this, however, should not obscure the fact that it is actually about disillusioned love. The person is trying to work through the complex of the dead mother, hates the mother in each and every person and at the same time unconsciously loves her with desperation, cannot untangle themselves as much as they go out of their way to declare independence from every parental figure they encounter. Number three, negative megalomania. Another form of coping is the tendency to blame oneself for the lack of resonance. In this way, filling a gap creates a bit of meaning. Why doesn't my father show interest in me? Why doesn't he love me the way I so wish he would? Because I am uninteresting. Because I am not good as I am. This, however, is a way of creating meaning through self-devaluation. It is I who is responsible for everything, because it is I who is bad. It is because of me that the longing for love is unrequited. The more the feeling of resonance is lacking, the more one condemns oneself. There is nothing in particular that makes me unworthy of my parents' love. For whatever I do, I cannot change it. It is my existence in general, that I am there at all. With this alone, I have made myself guilty. Unconsciously, however, attributing blame to oneself represents a stabilization in the bond to one's parents. Indeed, they are the ones that such self-condemnations really protect. They are the ones removed from the line of fire. The separation aggression that could lead to a process of detachment does not materialize. Instead, entangling one in an endless repetition of self-accusations. Number four, 
the glorification of suffering. Here, a person comes to identify with their own suffering, becomes fixated on tormenting and pitying themselves. They constantly feel tortured, humiliated, and worthless, or they bring about situations that humiliate and torture them, even to the point of sexual masochism, in other words, voluntarily submitting themselves to sexual domination. This often involves a latent narcissistic dimension, in which the secret glorification of suffering attains superhuman heights through the continuation of some negative experience of greatness. Nobody is worse off. Nobody is more miserable, more worthless. In other words, the echo homo of self-torture. There is sometimes a hidden pleasure in hours of brooding and fretting, an almost addictive attraction. NEP disturbs one's sleep. The lacerated ego is dragged obsessively through every rite and ritual of self-mortification, as if one had to take up every conceivable opportunity to reproach oneself. Unconsciously, however, the relational dimension is also decisive here, in that one's entire being has now unconsciously come to represent an accusation against one's inner parents, a thorn in the flesh. Look what you have done to me. I won't allow you to take comfort in my well-being, because you have done everything wrong. Or as a silent plea to the parents to finally lift the unbearable barrier, to come close, to tear down the walls of indifference. Why can't you see how I'm suffering? He who suffers has hope, has not renounced a desire for the other, clings to them with bloody fingers. Suffering is, in the end, a means of feeling alive, a masochistic and yet tangible bond that once again makes the process of separation all the more difficult. I will not let go, for as long as I suffer, I live, and as long as I live, I hope that someday you will open your eyes and see me. The person is captive to their suffering, is as incapable of ridding themselves of it as they are of freeing themselves from the complex of the dead caregiver. Number 5. Depression as Object Here, lastly, the depressive affect is the very substance of life. Withdrawal into a depressive world is cultivated with pathological fervor. The cult of depression, so to speak, which increasingly becomes a kind of lifestyle, is agonizing, and yet in a strange way, meaningful, irreplaceable. All ties to the outside world, to development, life, the new and the different, are severed. The person slips into a state of increasing paralysis, mental stagnation is incapable of surmounting important thresholds in life. Here, the dungeon of thyself, the inner crypt, is installed quite literally within life itself. The decisive point here, too, is that this is a means of preserving the inner bond. As a representative of the dead mother, depression becomes an ever-present companion, something that is there at all times, that decorates the interior of one's mind. But this is a cheerless cult with a sometimes grim twist. In the words of the psychoanalyst Julia Kristeva, sadness is really the sole object. 
More precisely, it is a substitute object they become attached to, an object they tame and cherish for lack of another. In such a case, suicide is not a disguised act of war, but a merging with sadness, and beyond it, with that impossible love, never reached, always elsewhere. Such as the promises of nothingness, of death. Herein, white depression is finally consummated. The lifeless mother or lifeless father becomes ubiquitous. Emptiness is internalized as the very substance of life. And the only hope that remains are the promises of nothingness, the perversion of an unfulfilled love. Is there a way out of this prison of the self? From the perspective of psychoanalysis, white depression is the internalization of a dysfunctional relationship, which psychotherapeutic work on relationships can ultimately bring to light and transform. Though patient and therapist alike may very well be faced with a long and arduous journey. What is crucial here as well is finding within the therapeutic relationship a form of emotional awareness. Indeed, the phantom of emptiness reappears again and again in each relationship anew. Yet this phantom is undetected and hence unresolved. This is also called the projective reactualization of trauma, in which the trauma is re-experienced and yet still misapprehended. In contrast, recollection or becoming aware are internal processes of transformation. One could also say that white depression, the complex of the dead mother, is ultimately about a process of detachment, of mourning, about gradually extracting oneself from an inner relationship that renders all experience meaningless, that distorts one's future by imposing the unresolved past upon it, an attachment one nevertheless clings to with everlasting desperate love. Therapeutic progress means setting a mourning process in motion, finally allowing the dead mother or father to perish within, finding one's peace, no longer shouldering these apparitions through every new stage of life, a pattern that first has to be recognized in its full emotional significance. But in the end, mourning also requires a willingness to let go, a curiosity, a desire for growth that is greater than the pain feared. In most cases, therapeutic support is necessary to gain the space to break free from the grip of white depression, from an everlasting allegiance to the principle, everything shall remain as is. Sometimes the wound is perhaps too great, the pain too overwhelming, with little faith in change. And yet a therapist follows the precept to never give up hope, to be the guardian of hope even over long periods of time, even through the vast valley of meaninglessness. Hope not as a delusional promise, but as the affirmation of life, as the foundation for all psychoanalytic thinking, which is guided by the conviction that in every human being there is something that wants to live, to develop, no matter how deeply it is buried in pain and defeat, no matter how much it has been crushed by the other parts of the self. Ultimately, however, a therapist cannot replace a person's will, 
and the central question of every therapy is perhaps, do I dare once again to hope, to believe once more in something, to take another chance at something different, something new? For everyone, saying yes to life involves the agony of being born, the labor of separation, and especially in the case of white depression, letting go of unfulfilled longing in order to long once again. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.